How does a narrow majority in the U.S. House of Representatives work? What will Republicans have to do to manage it? And what can Democrats do to overcome it? This is Beyond Politics. We are broadcast on WKXL Radio. We're available as a video and an audio podcast wherever you watch and listen. I'm your host, Matt Robeson, with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, to dive into those questions about what this super thin congressional majority will look like. We have an outstanding expert. When I was a congressional staffer, there was no one who had more say about what happened in Congress, at least no one who hadn't been elected to office, than our guest today, Jerry Hartz. He worked in Congress for 28 years, most recently as senior advisor and director of legislative floor operations for Nancy Pelosi, but also previously as the staffer most responsible for rounding up the votes and putting together the rules in the House of Representatives. There's no one on earth who knows more about how to run the House of Representatives. Seriously, if you remember the Schoolhouse Rock cartoon about a bill just sitting here on Capitol Hill, he's like the bill that explains how everything works. Jerry, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you, Representative Hodes. Nice Glad to, to see join you. you. Well, we're thrilled to have you. This is, it's really a treat for us. And for any, trust me, folks who are listening and watching, if you are a congressional insider, any time over the last quarter century, if you've been involved in the process in the House, you know who this man is. So look, obviously, most of our discussion today is going to be centered around that broad look at what the next two years are going to be like, how they might play out. But as we record this, the news about Speaker Pelosi ending her tenure as the top leader for Democrats is still fresh. Well, obviously, I'll be able to read about the historical milestones, sort of the counting numbers of everything she's done and achieved. But I wanted to ask you, as one of her former top advisors with an insider perspective, do you have a memory or a story of, of working with Speaker Pelosi that really stands out to you? <laughs> There's so much. She's amazing. I mean, she is the greatest speaker in the history of the Congress, which is saying something, not only being the first woman, but she, she has it all. She comes first and foremost with values. She's a devout Catholic. She's not there for herself. She's for the country and her values and what her caucus wants. She knows intimately every member of her caucus. She is strategic brilliance. It's hard to keep up with her as a staffer. She raises money out the wazoo. She knows every member's district, their nephews, nieces. <laughs> she just has the whole package. And I think... You know, I, I often wonder, you know, when people say, oh, everybody's too old, we need, need new leaders. And I'm like, I served under six speakers. I mean, honestly, nobody could hold a candle to her. And you don't know what you got until it's gone. So we shall see. You know, just for a very quick perspective, when I, I was elected in 2006, I was chosen as president of the historic freshman class, which we, we were the first majority since 1994. So it was a very jubilant time. And beyond all the wonderful accolades that I could offer um, Madam Speaker, she she was remarkable in the way she brought the freshman Democrats together every week in her office to, to meet and hear us out. She was sometimes patient, but she suffered foolishness. She suffered no foolishness. I will, I will offer one quick memory that has nothing really to do with politics. And it was at the first Democratic retreat when, when our staffers for me and John Hall of Orleans fame and other musical members of Congress secretly took the stage from the band 
that was playing for our retreat and we struck up some terrific rock number with a true rock star and then the rest of us playing along and the place erupted i mean the demo, you know people couldn't imagine what had happened who were these new members of congress and that were that were playing rock music and i'll never forget nancy pelosi and rahm emanuel standing in front of the stage with their jaws literally on the floor and then wildly dancing <laughs> why just completely unabandoned dancing i never saw her quite that unabandoned again paul are you saying that nancy pelosi pulled a courtney cox with and you're you're the bruce <laughs> i sure <laughs> sure but it's you know it's the it's it, it's an indelible memory for me and of course she and i actually did a bit of a circuit at the very beginning of 2007 because you know i was the president and she had to take me along and we we'd give we'd give speeches and i mean she she she's a true progressive who understands that the road to real progress isn't linear and it requires deft navigation. And she is the deftest of all navigators. Wow. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, on that, I, I, I guess we have to now actually talk some turkey. So I actually, Paul, why don't why don't you why don't you start out? I, I... Okay, sure. So look, look, the the next term looks to be one of the narrowest House majorities in in history. It's very close to what we saw Democrats have in the last two years. And when Democrats had a slim majority, and sim similar to the very slim majorities that Republicans held from 1999 to 2003. So from your backstage view, from the inside, inside the caucus view, what are Republicans doing right now to figure out how to make this work? And what is or, or what should be on Kevin McCarthy's mind in the next few weeks, even before the new session starts, especially given his rather tenuous, tenuous attraction to his own caucus? Well, <laughs> the power of the speaker is awesome. And Nancy Pelosi showed how it's done when you've got a four vote margin or a five vote margin. And, you know, in all her tenure, all the way from 2002, when she was whip and then leader, then speaker and leader and then speaker, she never lost a vote. And the House rules do allow you to pull a bill <laughs> mm -hmm. and go back and get the votes. But, you know, she did whatever she needed to do to get across the finish line. And, and get the votes necessary. And, uh, you know, just as one example, I'll never forget in 2009 in December, you know, there was a jobs bill that we put on the floor and Jim Clyburn, Nancy Pelosi, myself and George Candanus, another great mentor of mine on, as a Hill staffer, we were in the back and Mr. Clyburn said, I don't think we have the votes, Madam Speaker. And, and he looked right at George and I, and we said, we gotta go. And, you know, you pull back and it shows weakness and then things fall apart. And we won by one vote. But it was a signal to me that we were in trouble going into 2010. That was the first time I really got hit in the head that, you know, people were deeply concerned and, and even our own members had trouble. The thing with McCarthy that I think is really something to be watching is that the Freedom Caucus on the Republican side has offered all kinds of things that would limit his power. 
chance to vacate the chair, have a vote on removing him as speaker, the chance to mess with the rules committee. Every single bill goes to the floor unless it's under a two-thirds rule that's different, has to go through the rules committee. It's the power of the speaker on that rules committee, nine to four majority. There's also a proposal to have committee chairs elected by the committees. There's a proposal that every single bill before it goes to the floor has to get a majority of Republican support. These things all limit Kevin McCarthy's power as speaker. And so I will be very interested and very much watching on January 3rd when the new Congress begins, what is in the rules package for the Republican conference and does it undermine his ability to be a true speaker? Let me follow up on that then, because I know it sounds like we're way, way down in the weeds when we talk about the rules of the House of Representatives. But look, if you're a sports fan, if you like the NFL, which is just absolutely awash in rules, you know how much in sports it matters when you make a, a, a change in the rules. You can hit the quarterback. You can't hit the quarterback. You can, you know, you can lead with a shoulder. You can't lead with a shoulder. This is a travel. This is a hand check. All these kinds of things. The same thing is very much true in the House. And you just alluded to the fact that these kinds of nitty gritty rules changes can really make a difference. So, so you you just outlined a few rules changes that you're going to be looking out for. What, how does it kind of play out? Kind of, maybe you could take us inside the movie of what it looks like under variations in the rules and how that can make a huge difference in ability to pass legislation and the relative power dynamic of the majority. Well, just take the one example. I mean, John Boehner was elected speaker in 2011 after the, we lost the house, lost the house. He was able to somehow manage for five years, but by 2015, the issue of being able to vacate the chair put him in jeopardy, and I don't think he was going to be able to stay. Paul Ryan was the next Republican speaker for two years until Nancy Pelosi was reelected in the election of 2018 and became speaker again in 2019, but he was losing control of that conference. So the, the issue of vacating the chair is, is really one to watch. Can they put... <laughs> that vote on the floor from any member and say, sorry, no confidence in your leadership. Goodbye. That's going to be key. Actually, one more follow-up on this. I, I, cause you, that was just such a, such a wonderful tease, the Boehner situation, then the Paul Ryan situation. I remember when Barack Obama was elected president and we were all jubilant. I, I, Paul, I remember you. I think you and I both actually had some tears streaming down our face. It was, it was really spectacular. And The Onion totally came in and harshed our buzz with a fantastic headline, America gives black man worst job on earth. Because there we were in the middle <laughs> of a total meltdown. I just, it strikes me that now things have really migrated. And now Speaker of the House, if you're a Republican, might be the worst job on earth. So Jerry, I guess my question for you is, is this a governable group? Is this, is this a doable job? Would anyone in their right mind want this job? Well, there's all kinds of reasons why political leaders exist and why they want those jobs. And Representative Hodes could talk about that better than myself. Insanity. It's going to be really hard. I mean, it's, it goes from the reddest of the red to, and ironically, in New York, of all places, and others in California, some very what used to be a, a non-existent thing, a very a group of moderate, you know, Republicans or people who are in districts where Biden won a significant majority, maybe even double digits in some instances. So that hasn't existed for quite a long time. 
So how do you get all of that ideological spectrum, you know, covered in a piece of legislation? That's very curious to me. You know, the answer you just gave about the election of what we might call and hope to call moderate Republicans, which we thought, I mean, we thought there were none. We, we, we thought that that was a dead issue. This is a cult. And they've all, they've all gone to the pitchfork party. But, but if, in fact, there are some moderate Republicans, it's an interesting foundation for my question, which is what should Democrats be thinking about heading into the session about their approach to this narrow minority on the other side of the aisle? And given our little discussion just now about the possibility that there may exist some new kind of Republican that we're unused to, what can Democrats do to overcome their disadvantages and maximize their influence? Can they woo any of these potentially moderate Republicans? I think there's real possibility here. I mean, look at the election. We are a closely divided country, but there are people who, you know, are in the independent realm who swing that make the difference. And you, you need to somehow empower your base and make them super enthusiastic while also reaching out to that middle. And I think the country's hungry, hungry for that middle and it showed it in this election. So yes, if I were sitting there next to uh, leader uh, Jeffries, if he becomes the, the, the elected replacement for, for Speaker Pelosi, I would be thinking every way possible to build bridges and reach out to some of the same people who, you know, we probably would, you know, as a Democrat would want to beat in the next election. But yes, in that next two years, you want to try to build those bipartisan bridges for sure. And you've done this kind of thing before. I mean, we're currently in a situation where there are nine Republicans in the upcoming Congress who are going to occupy districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. So I would assume that one of the things to kind of Paul's question about what Democrats are doing right now, you're probably you're probably saying less than you know about because I know you're still super well connected inside those rooms. But inside the room where it happens, one of the things that they're probably doing right now is looking at those members, looking at those districts, thinking about those issues and starting to map out, how do we split them? How do we get them? How do we chip away? I mean, nine potential targets as a starting point. And then there, there are going to be other swing seat members that you might be able to peel off, even if it's a more marginal district. I imagine that's where it starts, right? You're, you're looking at where are people gettable? What are the sort of the wedge issues? And what can you bring to the table that would functionally peel them away and put you in a majority position? Absolutely, you would be doing that. No question. And, and you know, I think the Biden administration and the Democrats in the Senate are going to have to, they're going to have to have issues that they run on for 2024. And so hopefully those will be issues that can capture some of those folks. And that Democrats in the House are going to have to be thinking, how do we set up the votes? How do we set up the issues? How do we appeal to them to cross the line? So, all right. One of my favorite things to ask people who are true inside the room experts is to play the movie for listeners and viewers, like really take us inside. So I want to ask you about picture in your mind. This has probably happened to you only about 3000 times in your career. You've got a close vote on a controversial bill coming up. What is 
your team, when you were part of a, a close majority, what is your team doing in the week beforehand, in the day beforehand, in the hour beforehand, when you're trying to pass that bill and you've got to get the votes lined up? Wow. Well, you start with caucus meetings. You, the Democrats meet every week and you make sure you, you have listening sessions for the, the issues that you want to move. There's generally a consensus, I think, after an election about kind of what the, what the priorities are, what the legislative initiatives are. Each chairman or ranking member of a committee plays a huge role in shaping that and creating that legislation with the experts that are on that committee, the staff, and all of the people who support Congress, the Congressional Research Service, the uh, Congressional Budget Office, the parliamentarians to craft something that comes out of committee. And then the whip goes to, goes to work. The whip starts counting. And there, as Representative Hodes talks about, there's all kinds of groupings. There's the Women's Caucus. There's the Black Caucus. There's the Hispanic Caucus, at least on the Democratic side. The freshman. Right, that doesn't exist. The sophomores. <laughs> it's very lonely in each of those. <laughs> There's the boring gray suit male caucus on the Republican side. Yeah. But you have your inroads, each of those groups, and there can be issues that pop up that are sort of an ideological flavor. You have to think about the progressive caucuses, nearly half or more of Democratic caucus, but there was also a blue dog caucus. There's a moderate caucus. Anyway, you want to have all of those feelers out there. So you get your whip count back, you got your sheet, and you're like, oh my God, we're 50 votes short. <laughs> and you're literally, <laughs> is literally calling someone like me and saying, uh, where is Mr. Hodes on this vote? And if you're, you're calling me because probably someone like you or your boss has pulled Paul aside on the floor by the lapels, LBJ style, say, Paul, where are you on this vote? And if you're Rahm Emanuel, it's Paul, you're with me on this vote or I will murder you. That's a good image. And, yeah. you know, on the Hill, your word is gold. And if you break your word about a whip count, <laughs> that's like, oh, my, that's almost unforgivable. So at least if 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 some representative is not going to be with you, you need to hear it directly from them. It won't mean that nobody won't keep talking, but you got to hear it directly and you got to figure out what the issue is. As I was walking down the aisle when I was going to leave Nancy Pelosi's service, I grabbed her hand and I said, everybody's going to talk about Affordable Care Act for the rest of your life. But the thing I always remember, Madam Speaker, is what you did on the cap and trade bill. So take you back to July of 2009, before the Tea Party eruption in August, before the Affordable Care Act. Nancy Pelosi decides that the first big bill, after we've done all the economic repair package to try to get you know, back on track in terms of the economy and the fallout from the 2008 recession, Wall Street housing collapse, cap and trade, climate change, really as much as healthcare, her number one issue. She gets a whip count from the groups, the environmental groups, and it has like 110 yeses on it. Ooh. And this is the Markey Waxman, you know, bill to basically says there's a market and private sort of support for, you know, basically trading to lower cap uh, fossil fuel penalties, et cetera. She takes that 110 votes. And I sat with her every day for the next 10 days and into the night. And it was calling members and hearing them out. What is it you need? What is it we can do? You realize how important this issue is. This is literally the life 
of the world we're talking about. And three, four, five votes a day, she built that out to become a majority. You know, and I, in complete amazement, it wasn't like I'm going to clobber you if you don't do this. It was the moral appeal. It was the, we are up for this challenge. This is why we are here. And it was just this incredibly driven value-based effort that succeeded. Mm. And it was, blew everybody's mind. It also cost a lot of trouble and backlash because it gave the other side a real chance to attack people. They weren't ready for this issue. They weren't ready for this idea, even though it was a Republican idea that came out of like acid rain. And the unfortunate thing is she did what she needed to do, but Harry Reid could not get it through the Senate. Mm. And so it died. But already think about this, in 2009, way before the Inflation Reduction Act that passed this year, the most historic bill ever for climate change, she did it. She did it. And how much further along we would have been combating mm. climate. I had it some, breaks my heart. <laughs> oh, I had some really important things in that bill. I mean, I, 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 I was on the Financial Services Committee and Ed Perlmutter and I, Ed Perlmutter, who's now retiring, just we worked, we worked, we worked really hard with our staff to create some really innovative financial institution incentives and ways forward on climate change that really would have, they would have, I think, revolutionized the way financial institutions dealt with climate change. And I'm... I'm sorry that it died, died in the Senate where where there was there was clearly no Jerry Hartz to. But you to know what we're learning here, Paul. Reed. No, you know what we're learning here, Paul. Is you went from 110 to to over 218. Along the way, you probably had to give away a little bit of political capital and some favors. You should have played hard to get, my friend. I know, you, Paul. Hodes, I know. Should have I was taken the call. Just take the call. Get I know. I, listen, I was mood. You were. I was, you were an easy date. I was easy. I was much too naive. I didn't understand until too late in the game the kind of power and leverage I had with my vote and what I could get with it. It just it I was just naive. And of course, Matt, I'll blame you because you never sat me down and said, listen, forget about it. It's time for you to play a little hardball with these people. Yeah, you know, problem, you got to play a little hardball. The but, problem but was I, problem I never had was, that. I never yeah. got that speech. You know what? It, it was because there was the the ROM whip operation I was so used to. Like, I was literally afraid of getting of getting kneecapped, like, mm -hmm. you know, like Jeff Galuli, Tanya, Tanya Harding style. That's that's what I was yeah, afraid was going to happen. Right, right, right. You know, self-preservation. So just, just to follow up on that, I want to I want to kind of put in your mind's eye just back on the theme of what are the next two years going to look like? So you picture the process you just laid out and the incredible persuasive power that Nancy Pelosi was able to wield based on an intimate knowledge of each member's district, knowing them, knowing their family, knowing what the pressure points were. And also here's how far I can push you politically because I know what your bottom line really has to be. That's why Paul, I'm kind of teasing because Nancy knew that you really actually were not gonna hold out on this. Let's picture that with this Republican majority that's coming up. How how well are Republicans going to be able to do that in the face of the House Freedom Caucus and, and the 30 or so members there and some of these weird outliers like Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of these nine 
Republicans that occupy Biden districts. Is this is this something that Republicans can do to pass difficult legislation? We shall see. I think there is a group who do not want to be part of anything. They, you know, there's a, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a famous Linda Johnson quote, you know, about people who are inside the tent and people who are on the outside of the tent pissing in. <laughs> you can say language. it on the radio. You can say it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always, there's always a, a few, you know, one or two or, or what. But I just feel like in some instances, maybe Kevin McCarthy is going to have his hands full because there are more of those. And they thrive by bringing it down. They thrive by being the other. They thrive from, you know, more they can destroy. And mm. I just think it's more prevalent there. And I think in this, this new elected Republican conference, it's going to be interesting to see how he manages that. I don't have an answer. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question about the, the Democrats. And, you know, we've talked about some of the possibilities for a potentially new bipartisan approach to some things in Congress with moderates having, or so-called moderates, or potentially moderates having taken seats from Democrats in districts districts that Biden won. Something, I mean, unthinkable since 2016, frankly, just unthinkable. And so let's say that the Republicans have a potentially very tenuous majority. Can Democrats succeed in forcing tough votes on procedural motions or amendments? And if they can, what happens it, What happens if they can and they manage to win some of those votes? And, and, and as a precursor to your answer, Jerry, could you just ex- help our listeners understand just how important procedural motions and amendments and some of those are as we move towards the vo- votes on the actual legislation? Well, there's one... I'm sorry to be in the weeds. It's called the previous question on the rule, which means we're ready to vote. If you defeat the previous question, though, it has far more meaning. It means that essentially you're setting up control shifting to the minority. Instead of the speaker being in charge, the minority can write the rule and bring something to the floor. This actually happened in 1981 with the Reagan tax cuts. Charlie Stenholm, former you know, blue dog, joined with a bunch of Democrats to allow the floor, took the floor away from control of the floor with, away from Tip O'Neill. And that's how the Reagan tax cuts got through in 1981. In 1996, my former boss besides Nancy Pelosi, David Bonier, was the whip. We orchestrated previous question votes and we had five on the minimum wage. Pretty mm-hmm. soon, Speaker Gingrich was up in rules, sitting by, or sitting, actually negotiating directly with us. What do you need? And the tip wage that a lot of your waiters and waitresses have had to live with came out of that. We got the minimum wage increase. They got $2.10 for the rest of your life. You'll never get any more. Waiters and waitresses get only tips. So that's an extremely important one that exists. We used to also have a motion to recommit. Every bill at the end has one final chance to go back and change it. that That is a minority right. The Democrats, with the tiny razor that they had in the last Congress, did not extend that. Whether the Republicans offer that opportunity is huge, because you can argue that's a real vote. 
I want you, Representative Hodes, to vote on whether you think sexual predators should be allowed to be hired as teachers. Oh my God, <laughs> really? <laughs> it's a tough one. And, you know, sometimes we lost those even in the majority and had to fix it. So anyway, that's going to be an interesting thing. And that whole rules package on January 3rd, do they allow that last minority shot to change a bill? I, I just, ju- I just want to s- kind of like oop the alley that you just so brilliantly set up there, Jerry, because first of all, you've triggered me, man. I, I, I have to tell you, I can't, I just, it's uncountable. The number of times I sat in that darn giant conference room in the basement of the Capitol, and I heard you say a version of what you said two minutes ago of, if you vote with Republicans on this previous question, you are taking away our majority. You are giving power to the minority. If you do that, you are making them the majority party. And I was like, I don't think I really understood at the time, but that that the stories of what that can mean when that happens and the amount of leverage that gives the minority party are really breathtaking. And that could well be relevant in the next two years. I hope people will bookmark that moment because we may be returning to that. Motion to recommit, Paul, I I know that that gave you the heebie-jeebies because your example, Jerry, is spot on. You You could insert something like that on any bill. And of course, you do not believe sexual predators should be able to work as teachers. I mean, duh. But the problem is, you're you're it's like it's like the choice in the princess bride you can't choose the cup in front of you you can't choose the cup in front of me they're both full of poison if you vote with the republicans on that then you are defeating the bill maybe the bill is like you know the the inflation reduction act like you kind of want to pass that holds votes for sexual predators as teachers but if you write if you vote if if you vote the other way then you know, and like you protect the underlying bill, then that's what you're going to see in a 30 second ad in your next reelection. It's, it's excruciating. So the previous question motion, that's still going to be there, but motion to recommit, probably not something the Republicans are looking to resurrect, but who knows? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, crazy times. Absolutely. Crazy. Hey, by the, and by the way, when you, when you get elected to Congress, you don't know any of this. And Frankly, for most of the time you're in Congress, you still don't understand it. I mean, you know, usually by the end of my two terms, I kind of knew where the bathrooms were. I was beginning to get a sense of what the various committees did. I kind of knew how a bill made its way through. I kind of understood the budget process and when it would happen. But boy, oh boy, what folks don't understand is it actually takes a long time to really understand the intricacies of, of how Congress works and what the importance of the rules are and the procedural motions and the way the floor is controlled and how bills come. And it is why leaders with longevity and smarts like Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn have been so remarkably successful and remarkably important to the success, whatever success Democrats have had in in the U.S. House. Because in addition to exercising their leadership, they really also have to mentor, you know, the turnover of 
new members and even some members who are, are never smart enough to really understand the way things work. But that's that's why you have and you trust people like Jerry Hartz and our current DNC chair, Jamie Harrison, who, right. you know, that used to be his job when he worked for Mr. Clyburn right. and George Candanis. And, you know, even people like me who are working in individual member offices, you know, you've got to have people who are you know, you outsource some of that brain because you've got other things to worry about. You know, speaking of all the things that leaders can do to help their caucus and to manipulate the rules and just take advantage of every opportunity that you have in the house. Jerry, when you and I worked on the Hill uh, at the same time years ago, I was always working. I worked for various members. I was always working for someone who was in a swing district who was going to have a tough reelection coming. Now, one of the things that both parties do and that that Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn leadership team was super good at doing was giving those swing seat members as much of a boost as possible by giving them saying, hey, you're going to sponsor this bill and we're going to pass it. And, you know, that's that's something that happened. Paul, you benefited from that. Some of the legislation you passed was like, Paul, congratulations. Here's a bill that you're going to write. Or you give them time on TV, or you give them an opportunity to stand up at a press. All this stuff that you do to try and help these folks. So in this kind of an environment with this ultra-thin majority, they're probably not going to be able to pass a lot of legislation. I think we've established that. What do you expect each party to do along those lines? What do you expect to see in the next two years to try to help their vulnerable members? Well, you, you listed some of them, certainly sponsoring a lead message bill, like the Affordable Care Act or the climate change or, you know, pre prescription drug, you know, negotiation, giving that to a new member is a number one or a, a swing member, giving them prominence at press conferences to be spokespeople, giving them an opportunity to speak on bills on the floor. Mind you, there are 435 members in the House of Representatives. And you you know you have the bill, you have the rule, you have one minutes, and you have special orders. It's even getting time to speak and make your case. But if Representative Hodes gets five minutes to make the closing speech on the big bill that we're going to vote that will change history and make America better, that's pretty dang good, right? A key amendment, you know, listening tours. I mean, there's civilian things that you try to do to to help your swing members shine. And mind you that. And this is where I just really want your listeners to know, being a public servant in a swing district, you know, represent, Representative Hose is very, you know, kind to say, you know, I had to learn so much when I was there. You're out raising money. You're out meeting constituents. You're, you're doing what you need to do every weekend, every month, while you're trying to learn all this stuff in Washington, D.C. It's a really difficult job. There's a, it's like, 24-7 doesn't even begin to speak to it. And Representative Hodes, you probably could tell us stories about what it was like to, to, to manage something like that. It's it, Who would want this? It's exhausting. Yeah, was, who would who would want, first of all, who would want the job of being a member of Congress? Who would want the job of being a member of Congress in a politically difficult district? And who would want the job of being the speaker to oversee the members of Congress? I sound like a nursery rhyme. In all of those districts, apparently Kevin McCarthy wants that job. Well, he, he he's trying, but look, we you know uh, we had when I was when I was a, a freshman and serving in, in Congress, lo these many years ago, Kevin McCarthy was just a a young a young little guy in Congress like me. I used to be young, and we'd go and have Chinese dinners at a very bad Chinese restaurant on the hill. And it's passable. 
okay. It's fine. It, it, it was okay. It was fine for what it was. The food wasn't the issue. The dinner, the, the dinners were. He's pleasant enough. He's he's pleasant enough. I, I find it remarkable that Kevin McCarthy is the Republican who's managed to elevate himself and somehow wriggle into the position of perhaps becoming the speaker of this ungovernable new majority of Republicans. And one of, let me, one of the interesting things I've been thinking about is we know that Trump himself is in all kinds of legal trouble. And, re, and clearly the news is that Republicans are beginning to turn. As that occurs, let's assume that that continues. We expect to see more and more Republicans kind of washing their hands of the last, let's say, I mean, at least six years. I have no idea, but I would hope so. I mean, I think, you know, we got pretty up to the edge here in terms of democracy. And I think the election spoke to people who, you know, want, you know, you can have strong feelings, but you still are an American. You're still part of this country and part of this fantastic democracy that we have. They want some healing and they want some to, you know, people to come together and do things that meet their needs. And there's a lot of needs out there. We know people who are struggling, you know, from, from the inflation, the grocery prices, et cetera. So there's a real opportunity here. And, you know, I hope, I certainly hope that both sides come together and figure out how to, how to answer what the election called for. We shall see. And just to follow up on that thought, speaking of change of leadership, are there scenarios, I actually don't know the answer to this myself, are there scenarios where a speaker can be deposed in the middle of a congressional term? I mean, you mentioned the motion to vacate, that would be maybe one avenue there, but even without that, I, whatever, whenever people view and listen to this, and, and we expect that this video will be available for a good long time, Whatever situation we're in when people are watching and listening to this, could the situation still change over the next two years in terms of congressional leadership? It can. And, you know, that's that's why, you know, there, there, there's no way to sort of know and why Kevin McCarthy, as I said earlier, has to be very careful about any rules changes that he has to agree to. I mean, you know, I think there's a certain survival mechanism that's not just about him, but it's about the Republican conference itself. And they're going to have to figure out, you know, it's their conversation to come together, you know, and, and, and know, I mean, even Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think has said, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to hold together. And so there's a certain imperative that happens no matter who's in charge of any, you know, political party to know that this is a team and, and we exist as a unit. All right. Lightning round question for you. Oh, let me give you this. 28 years on the Hill, just I'm here three times longer than, than I managed to hang around. What moment stands out most to you? Oh gosh. Well, there's so many, but the, I'll never forget being in the Capitol on 911 and we were on the third floor and when the towers fell, the first one, and then the second one, and then the Pentagon got hit, mind you, Capitol police didn't know what was going on either. And my boss, David Bonnier said, we've got to evacuate. So we all went out on the lawn outside the East Capitol and stood and the two F-16s flew up from Norfolk and broke the sound barrier, boom, boom. Everyone thought we were under attack and another explosion was happening. We went to his apartment. Long story short, Denny Hastert got a call, Speaker Hastert from George Bush, who was up in the air. They 
took us to the special place. I went there, planes came down all across the country. And finally the leadership meant that it was time to go back. We flew in helicopters down the Potomac. The Pentagon was still burning. We landed on the west steps of the Capitol. We walked around to the east steps of the Capitol and sang God bless America together in bipartisan unity for our country. That's what it's all about. That's what this should be about. As much as we care about politics and our issues, we are one country. And I will never forget that moment. It was as powerful as anything in my memory. Jerry Hart's experienced inside man, senior advisor to Nancy Pelosi, and the 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 master of all things having to do with the U.S. House of Representatives. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics.